Welcome to Packet Pushes Heavy Networking, a podcast that gets deeper and closer to the real issues in data networking. Today is sponsored by Intel. Now, I have this sense that most network professionals are unaware that Intel actually has a substantial business in networking, and it's a story that should be exposed and talked about a lot more often. And fortunately, in the coming year, Intel is going to be sponsoring a number of podcasts where we'll dive into different topics related to networking and how Intel is bringing that to the market. Now, in particular, Intel acquired Barefoot Networks recently and is now the custodian of the Tofino ASIC, which is the fully programmable pipeline that we've talked about a number of times over the last five years, and particularly the P4 network programming language. So what we're going to do today is we're going to be talking with Mike Zeal, who is the Data Center Group Vice President and General Manager of End-to-End Network Applications, and he's going to be talking to us about five topics, P4, Tofino, SmartNext, and then a little soup song of futurism where we touch on silicon photonics, which is very cool topics. And I mean, a little hardware, I get always get excited about hardware. So welcome to the show, Mike. Let's get straight into the discussion. Let's summarize quickly P4. We know a little bit about it, but let's summarize what it is for people who aren't with it. And then let's start the discussion on where is it going. Sounds great. And of course, thanks for your time today and um, to the audience for, for tuning in. So uh, P4, it's a a high-level language that's used to describe the the data path functionality of a packet processing pipeline. So things like table structures, field definitions, match actions, that kind of stuff. It stands for Programming Protocol Independent Packet Processors. And the reason that's uh, what it stands for is because the, the paper that was written and published in 2014, that was the title of the paper. So then the name just got uh, grabbed from, from that original publishing. Somewhat incidentally, that uh, publishing was, was co-authored by um, the Barefoot team, as well as mm-hmm. some Intel folks, as well as some folks from, from uh, University uh, uh, Princeton, as well as Google. I didn't know that. I didn't realize that Intel was a key participant in the P4, in the development of the P4 language. Yeah. Yes. So um, mm. just just coincidentally, um, <laughs> but uh, it was originally intended to be fair for use with switches, um, yep. and so it was very specific to switch architectures and switch pipelines, uh, match action that kind of stuff. But over mm. the over the years, it's been extended to support things like software pipelines and um, and uh, smart NICs and appliances and middle boxes. So it's um, it's really evolved over the years to be much more than just a switch uh, packet processing pipeline description language. And mm-hmm. I'd say some of the goals that are worth noting, um, it's, it should be target independent. Uh, that is, um, you don't really need to know the details of the target that you're programming for. So again, high level, uh, it should be protocol independent. In fact, the, the P4 language actually describes the protocol that you yeah. plan to implement. And then re- yeah. reconfigure. You can use P4 to write a parser to produce IP, TCP IP4 or TCP V6 yep. and so forth. Although That's those right. are, you can literally go to websites and download those parsers because obviously why rewrite that yourself? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, but of course, there's a, a ton of innovation going on, especially around tunneling uh, where it didn't exist before and you're creating a new, a new protocol, a new algorithm uh, mm. on the fly using P4. So, I mean, I think that the way that P4 has become adopted by the community fairly widely. So we're seeing P4 being used far and not just for programming ASIC pipelines. It's actually used for programming EPPF. It works with DPDK. We're seeing it used in SmartNICs. We'll talk more about SmartNICs further down, but it's actually being used as the way of saying, this is what I want to do with my network pipeline. 
is Intel continuing to promote that? Are you continuing to push P4 forward then? Absolutely. Uh, of course, our Tofino products are front and center in this whole P4 um, initiative. But um, we, to your point, we've uh, augmented our, our um, tool chain so that we can support P4 to DPDK um, pipelines. Uh, so you can have a P4 description of a pipeline that then gets rendered into a software-based pipeline using DPDK or eBPF. So those are examples where we're continuing to extend the capabilities and, and sort of breadth of P4. But then as you'll see over time, uh, we'll include P4 in our SmartNIC products and our foundational NIC products, as well as our FPGA-based products. So right. um, P4 is fundamental to our, our strategy, and they were investing pretty heavily for success there. Yeah, because a lot of people may or may not know that Intel is actually a major contributor to fundamental projects in lots of ways, like the Linux kernel. And you are part largely responsible for a lot of the networking code in the Linux kernel today. That's right, isn't it? It is. And of course, um, it, you know about DPDK, but uh, Intel's uh, one of the key contributors to the Linux uh, uh, project. And uh, with DPDK in particular, uh, it's just it's taken over the world effect effectively. Uh, yeah. It's used everywhere by everybody. And um, we're seeing really, of course, we're, we're excited about the, its its breadth. We're also seeing people sort of extend it in ways that we wouldn't have expected. So there's a sort of a new variant called SPDK, which is around storage processing and very yeah. similar concepts. Um, and we're actually developing a, a tool chain and a, and a, and a software framework that is, can, that is very well aligned with DPDK. It's fundamental uh, to DPDK. Um, and, and think about it as P4, DPDK, eBPF as all sort of coexisting in the same tool chain. So you could just make your target choice late in the game. Sometimes it runs on a switch pipeline. Sometimes it runs on a SmartNIC pipeline. Sometimes it's running on the host uh, in software. I just want to pick this a little bit just because I think it would be interesting to make sure people understand. DPDK is a hardware acceleration using the CPU for network performance. Is that right? Yes. So DPDK is basically a, a, a set of library elements that are specific to packet uh, processing uh, mm -hmm. that run on a host. And, and so they're, think about them as library elements that are themselves um, uh, highly optimized for the target. So yeah. sometimes you have some hardware assist that you can uh, make use of in a SOC or a, or a CPU. Sometimes it's Mm -hmm. just highly optimized code for a function like parsing, like match yeah. action. Um, and so these library elements are, are in, in user space and yeah. you can essentially call them and, and run an application. And then eBPF is the optimized or rewrite of the networking stack so that the packet flow as it moves off the hardware and through the software to the CPU, then CPU memory, CPU memory, and then back out, that's actually an optimization of that Linux pathway. It moves away from the old path to a new optimized software, modern code, I guess. Yeah, and, and eBPF is rather interesting. It's a fairly new concept, but it's basically a sandboxed area inside of the Linux kernel. So right. instead of in the past, you used to have, uh, you have to write native uh, code in Linux and then, you know, wait some long period of time before it actually made its way into um, open source um, and available to the community. Or you had to do a kernel module, which then you have to chase each new release of Linux. Um, eBPF kind of creates this little sandbox with, you know, a path in and out of the of the kernel uh, where you, you can write any kind of application you want to, mostly around networking and trace uh, tracing and security. Right. 
And then P4 then is becoming an API for packet manipulation. So if you actually want to manipulate the packets as they egress the server, or if you want to do it in a switch. So if I wanted to, I think the classic one is the telemetry. I can use P4 to create a rewrite of the packet and inject a tag in there to my specifications to carry some uh, int, so integrated telemetry. I could say uh, the classic one that I've always thought of, you know, I see this packet arriving on the switch on port two, um, you know, on VLAN tag this. So I put a, create a custom tag and then create that. And then I can monitor that as it moves across the network. Yep. So uh, in-band network telemetry, INT, what you're referring to, is a really interesting um, emerging capability that's uh, that's implemented in and uh, really enabled by P4. And what's really interesting about the P4 connection is that you can, using P4, define what you want to uh, monitor, define what you want to track. So mm -hmm. it might be it might be queue depth and and, and latency. It might be uh, packet drops. It might be right. all of the above. So um, to your point, you can use P4 to really um, think about specifically how your infrastructure needs to be monitored uh, and use INT to implement that. So that's why we're seeing widespread adoption of P4. It's not just about packet rewriting. It's actually got a range of monitoring functions can be used as a way to read packet data and then feed that into some sort of analysis. And that's why we're seeing Cisco has support for P4. Mellanox has P4 capabilities. Xilinx has P4. It's widespread. It is. And, and I would say there's a very broad uh, set of uses for P4. Some, I, I, I think if the way I think about it is there are really three ways to tap into the power of P4. One is, you know, Intel can use P4 or Mellanos can use P4 to implement new features after the silicon is done. So post-silicon, a new feature is required, a new tunneling protocol emerges. I can implement that in P4 and make it available to the customers without them even knowing that it's P4 based. So that's one option. A second option is that our OEM customers can create differentiation with their own systems using P4. And this is, yeah. you know, somebody like an Arista would do that. They've done a lot of work in P4 to create a differentiated platform um, for, for the top rack switch and, and various appliances. And then finally, our end customers can optimize their infrastructure for various workloads using P4. And example there is somebody like an Alibaba who's doing things like load balancers. Then to your point earlier, um, yeah. network telemetry, they're using INT actually for congestion control and in congestion control. So it's got, you know, very granular visibility into what's going on in the network. You can trigger events and trigger, you know, new path selection, for example, um, by using the, the, uh, P4 with INT as the information that uh, instruments that. Well, that so this is one of those technologies where somebody like Alibaba can write custom code and have that feature, you know, and when you have hundreds of thousands of servers and a multi-billion dollar business, you can do, is this something that will trickle down to enterprises, do you think? Or is there some way that it comes to enterprises in a form that they can consume? Yes, so that's exactly the, the point I made um, a moment ago. The the fact that um, P four is there doesn't necessarily mean that people need to become P four experts to to make use of it. So yeah. it, it gives us and our OEM customers uh, a ton of flexibility to to chase new um, features and requirements. That said, um, we have been working pretty. Um, uh, 
diligently on making P4 available more broadly. So for example, we're extending our tool chain, we're extending P4's capabilities itself. We're creating um, sort of generic versions of things like switches and NICs and appliances so that customers can, you know, download those, um, drop them into their platforms and tweak as they need to, but um, they can run just as this. So there's something called, for example, portable switch architecture or portable NIC architecture, which is sort of a generic version of a switch or a NIC uh, written in P4 can, you know, in theory, it's target agnostic. So it puts you in the ballpark of what a NIC function would look like. And then you can add from there. So really then it becomes in the IT vendor community, something that they would just consume. You wouldn't, I as an enterprise in network engineer might not even be aware that P4 is going on in there, but it's a way for them to write. So if I'm writing a virtual switch or if I'm creating a service mesh, they might be talking to the operating system using P4 at some point or writing directly to a smart NIC to use a hardware accelerated path or a fully offloaded processing engine to do that. Or um, there might be a firewall NFV instance and it might be using P4 to call uh, the packet rewrite functionality for the load balancing or the application inspection. Yes, and and I'd say the other thing that you'll see uh, is a, I'll call it an ecosystem of a, a applications based on P4 and, yeah. and sort of partners in the community. So companies like Kaloom and NovaFlow have been doing a lot of work uh, in P4 for things like uh, UPFs and and for for 5G infrastructure, uh, yeah. BNGs, load balancers, NAT. Uh, gateways. Uh, so you can expect that as well. Our, no. our partners and customers developing sort of an ecosystem that uh, that end customers can tap into. I'm going to ask a pointed question here. And what's the business value to Intel? Like Intel's contributing all this support. You're contributing, probably there's dozens of headcount here, creating P4, participating in various bodies, if not hundreds. So, um, What's the business value for Intel? Why, if I'm evaluating P4, why, why is Intel throwing these resources at P4? What's, what's the win for you? It's um, multifold. If you think about um, what we've done with DPDK, the, the goal is to make it ubiquitous, but make sure that it runs best on IA. Uh, so, yeah. so there's an obvious uh, connection there. With um, P4 and um, our vision of the, the ultimate goal of having a network as a programmable platform, we think that uh, with our switches and our NICs and our host platform all working together, we can deliver the best integrated solution to our customers. One right. that scales better than the others, one that uh, has higher performance at scale, one that offers uh, uh, support of a variety of workloads. So our, our goal really is to deliver this network as a programmable platform, and it's all about um, P4. It's all about um, you know really sophisticated uh, uh, compilers and tool chains so that a customer can think about the network holistically, and right. as they write their code, you know the, the the code essentially parses to the appropriate target for the particular function. Yeah. So you can have, so for it's example, going to be interesting. You're not trying to develop something just for Intel. It's something that goes out that everybody can use. But there is a definite business goal here that that helps Intel, and that's why you're committing resources to it. It is, yes. And, and I would say some, some simple examples. We've done a fair amount of work in congestion control. 
And it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a really hot topic, lots of different uh, ways to skin the cat. And every single uh, cloud customer has their own version of congestion control. If we have the yeah. ability to um, you know, deliver a switch and a NIC that can work together to deliver on congestion control and they're programmable and they're flexible in the algorithms that they can implement, our customers yeah. can benefit. We don't have to choose one. We can offer a framework so that they can uh, do their own um, work I, in this space. I'm a big fan of what I call the 80-20 rule. I want 80% of the functionality out of the box and I want to do the last 20% myself. Mm-hmm. So if I wanted to do a cross capability, I'd like to see a bunch of stuff coming out of the box as standard that P4 based or industry standards, or there's some sort of IETF RFC comes out and that's all done. And then all I have to do is invoke the last 20% to turn it in something that I want to do for my business. It is, yes. And Greg, uh, in case you weren't aware, there's a community-led event uh, coming up. It's uh, the next annual P4 workshop. It's hosted by ONF. It's a virtual event, uh, and it's scheduled for May 18th uh, through the 20th. And if you go to um, the ONF website, you can learn more about that if anybody's interested in in participating. It's a great event. Uh, There's another event that's actually new to P4, I'd say, and that's the OVN um, and OVSCon. And and what's interesting there is that um, we have been developing a P4-based open vSwitch. Yes. Um, And we've did a number of papers and and presentations at the most recent event. And so that's, that's a new space for P4. But what's really interesting about that is... You know, the, the typical open vSwitch is, you know, pretty constrained. Customers in the market have been essentially, you know, forking it and doing their own version of it, creating a lot of consternation for support uh, of the various uh, uh, models. Adding P4 to OVS allows you to use P4 to describe the differences as opposed to getting into the kernel and really making fundamental yeah. changes. Um, so we're yeah. really excited about that. And again, OVNCon is one place where you can really learn more about that activity. We're really seeing a high interest in P4 and really community advocacy for P4 uh, is really coming on strong. So super excited about that. All right, let's turn to, to Fino. Uh, obviously, Intel acquired Barefoot. Uh, a while ago, and it's been integrated into Intel by now. I'm sure that the uh, integration process went incredibly smoothly and everybody is, uh, you know, (laughs) (laughs) things continued on just as if nothing ever changed. Um, (laughs) I guess the question here is where does Tofino go from here? If I'm a customer who's got Tofino or considering Tofino, uh, what's the pipeline for Tofino looking for? I know that Barefoot had Tofino too, and then that sort of stopped for a little bit. Is that coming? Yes. So uh, Tofino, of course, is in the market and is uh, doing quite well with customers. Uh, some of our anchor customers like Arista, as I mentioned, uh, like Alibaba, as I mentioned. Um, and and it's, it's, it's a great product. It's a 6.4 terabit uh, switch. We've got um, the next generation Tofino 2 um, emerging. It's, it's sampling broadly and, and many customers are in their sort of development phase as we speak. Mm-hmm. So really excited about um, its prospects. It uh, doubles the bandwidth, but also um, dramatically increases the resources available to be programmed. So I'd say that's the most interesting uh, thing about uh, Tofino 2. Resources to be programmed, Mike, as in um, the, the amount of forwarding entries, those sorts of things? Yep. Um, the size of tables, um, the, the depth of the pipeline, the ability to re- recirculate, those sorts of uh, things. So um, really a, a, a significant step up in performance and programmability uh, from Tofino. 
and uh, we've got a, a full generation of, um, of uh, products in the pipeline um, that continue to increase on uh, performance and throughput, but also um, deliver on additional, again, um, programming uh, capabilities. So this is, this, is, this is one of the key things about the Tofino is that it's actually a much more capable ASIC in terms of packet manipulation than other ASICs. There is actually a substantial differentiation between the ASICs and the different ASIC vendors. Some of them focus on absolute performance, like they get the most number of you know, terabits in a, in a form factor. Some of them focus on very low latency. Some of them focus on volume. And when I say volume, I mean like cheapest price or maximum profits, one of the two. The Tofino has this unique feature in that can actually do much more packet manipulation than others. Indeed. And, and I would say one thing that we've learned is pretty interesting and, and differentiating is the fact that we can generally run to completion on, on, um, on a pipeline, on, a, on an action. And mm. um, many others have a sort of a feed-forward pipeline where they have to essentially either um, reiterate and, and recirculate through the pipeline to get to mm-hmm. a completed um, function um, or find other ways to, to solve for it, maybe multi-stages. Um, so we can run to completion at full line rate on all packets uh, sizes and all, all um, line rates. It used it, it, the, the common wisdom used to be the more programmability, um, the, the lower performance and the higher power. And we proved in Tofino first generation that that's not true. So we had yeah. um, some some products um, from some of our customers where they had you know a Tofino based uh, uh, 6.4 terabit switch and a you know competitor's 6.4 terabit switch that was not programmable uh, and you know very similar power profile in fact ours was lower but you got the programmability that came from Tofino so we've done a really nice job of of maintaining the the kind of main speeds and feeds capabilities but then adding on top of that the flexibility and and functionality that comes with uh, with uh, programmability the big idea here mike is that means i can push the packet through the asic and well are we calling it an asic here is it a tofino asic is that correct Mm -hmm. okay i can push it through the asic and do a bunch of fancy packet processing on it multiple times at line rate again i'm not having to lose performance because i have to pass it through multiple times to accomplish whatever the fancy function is i'm trying to do Correct. So uh, in simple terms, uh, a competitor's pipeline might have the ability through multiple passes to get a job done, you know, some some specific function. But each pass basically halves the performance of the device. You have to essentially take the performance down because you're essentially consuming two passes through a pipeline. Ours is, you know, single pass through at line rate um, on, on all packet sizes on all ports. So that's a, a unique mm. capability that uh, ultimately gives to you know performance plus flexibility with no uh, with no real compromise it's this idea of run to completion you can do almost anything to a packet in a tofino but it runs through the asic once if you're yeah, doing right. a lot of packet changes like uh, the classic one is vxlan the overlay comes in and you need to strip off the vxlan header but there's a vlan header inside that or an mpls tag and so now on a short run pipeline you actually then feed it back into the input so it goes right. back through the inf- and sometimes it can go through the ASIC three or four times before you've stripped off all the tunneling data. Yes. And, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, uh, an and MPLS sudden, pipeline is a good example. There might be five five layers of uh, tunnels to get through a network. 
So you pop a, a header, you look at the next one, you run through again, pop a header, go through again, yep. pop a header. And yeah, it takes. And then the latency starts to get out of control. Like even time. though yep. it's low latency during a, uh, a proof of concept, you know, you do this test and you fire packets at it and, you know, you saturate it. But in the real world, you actually get these variable, the worst sort, you get this jitter latency where the, the, the packet manipulation time varies according to certain conditions and you can't actually reliably predict how long it will take to go through. It's quite a unique corner case, but if you've got the problem, you've got the problem. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Indeed. It's one of those ugly situations. Okay. And it's funny. One thing you mentioned uh, is latency. We have um, an initiative internally to Intel called HPN or high performance networking. And it's basically taking our standard uh, a Columbiaville Ethernet NIC, um, what's called a foundational NIC, and a Tofino switch, and optimizing them for MPI um, HPC workloads. And we're seeing performance that's you know on par with 100 gig InfiniBand because we're able to you know tune the pipeline um, and and we have a, a, a software suite called uh, Intel Ethernet Fabric Suite, which is essentially a, a middleware layer focused on MPI. So that combination of again Columbiaville tuned with with Tofino plus middleware software gives us the performance that's similar to InfiniBand for for HPC workloads. Uh, that's really something because normally InfiniBand and InfiniBand's rather com, uh, complex in its way. Like it's very simple to use, but it's very difficult to set up, and it's very expensive because it's become. Uh, uh, I like to call it fiber channely, which is <laughs> it's become like a niche market at the end of the run, and it's like the only people that are left in it are able to maximize their revenue opportunity, shall we say? And uh, you pay what you got to pay, you know. <laughs> To get yes, what you want. and I think Infinity Band and Fiber Channel sort of that model. I agreed, and and you're right. That's a really interesting comparison. The other thing about InfiniBand we've seen uh, over the years is it's a, it's it's targeted to you know highly tuned um, uh, clusters where you kind of own everything, and it's it's really um, uh, engineered fabric. It doesn't scale that well beyond sort of a very tightly coupled uh, cluster, whereas Ethernet just continues to scale fairly readily. So what we've seen also is with our HPN and, you know, Tofino with multiple layers plus Columbiaville, we can scale like Ethernet scales, but still maintain low latency for these uh, for these applications. Yeah, I'd just like to chortle a little bit to myself here. All those people who told me that uh, Ethernet would never defeat InfiniBand and how I laughed at them. Because although <laughs> Ethernet has many problems, the one it has is it's cheap and it always wins. If there's anything I've learned in the last 30 years of networking, Ethernet always wins. <laughs> but no, but yes. no, it just does. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. We always find a way to overcome the weaknesses of Ethernet and uh, that's where we end up. I want to move the conversation yep. along now to smart NICs as coprocessors. Now, this is a market that's actually emerged, to my mind, incredibly quickly. One minute, we're just talking about CPUs and, you know, moving data out. And all of a sudden, this smart NIC uh, movement, although it's been with us for 20 years, it's been a niche. And now, all of a sudden, it seems to have moved to the mainstream. We've seen venture capital funding get into to new organizations who are starting to do use old technologies to do new things, which is classic venture capital. And, <laughs> you know, where, where does Intel stand on smart NICs and the concept of the data processing unit, I guess? Sure. Uh, so we've got, um, a, a, of course, a robust roadmap of smart NICs in flight. We currently have FPGA-based smart NICs, which have done really quite well in the early days of the market, primarily because, as I mentioned earlier, <clears throat> there's a lot of um, 
there's there's a lot of use of the the vSwitch uh, yeah. for these new applications, and the FPGA has been able to capture a, a specific customer's requirements um, uh, in hardware. So maintain high performance, but capture the customer's requirements for the vSwitch. So that's been a, a key capability that the FPGA has offered in the early days of of the smart NIC. We're developing our own ASICs. Um, we'll be announcing those uh, soon uh, for the first generation. And you can expect, you know, similar to what we've developed and delivered in our FPGAs, um, but um, much more focus on P4 programmability, much more focus on things like embed network telemetry, um, and then, you know, robust uh, acceleration of key infrastructure functions, things like, you know, security, uh, storage, um, uh, and, and various network processing capabilities. So, so we, we are super excited about uh, this space. You know, it's fair to say that it's smart NIC isn't for everybody. There's some complexity associated, but certainly for, for the tier one cloud customers um, and really all of, of cloud, it's becoming a, a fundamental requirement for them to, again, achieve this next level of performance and scale. It, performance and scale in the sense that we need to offload the x86 and just have more things sitting on that smart NIC, rack density, power requirements, and these kind of things? Um, or is it just, we have another processor out there, we can push network functions around and then and then do more? I'm making a subtle distinction there, but... Yeah, a little bit of both. So in some cases, the customer is seeking, for example, bare metal, offer bare metal services. So they're trying to free up the cores for the cust their customers' right. workloads. And doing so, they need to essentially get all the network and infrastructure functionality off of mm -hmm. that host CPU yep. that used to be residing on that CPU. Um, and, and that's an easy one to think about and, and an easy one to sort of characterize how you'd, and what, what workloads would need to move and how you would do that. Um, then there are others, uh, for example, all of the edge processing that's, uh, it's, it's, an, it's a complement to that, uh, so that it can do things that are unique to the host CPU, and the host CPU isn't burdened with just moving packets around as a simple example. Uh, so it's it depends on the use case for sure. Yeah. So we've seen some people talk about using SmartNICs to run the hypervisor underneath, not the mm -hmm. VMs. The VMs run on the CPU, but the SmartNIC will actually run yep. the hypervisor, which fundamentally doesn't do a whole lot these days because of all of the virtualization extensions that have been carved into the CPU architectures. The VMs do actually talk directly to the mm -hmm. CPU instead of going through a software layer. But I think mm -hmm. the other part about this is that we're seeing virtualization increase the density of VMs on a host and the ability to drive 100 gigabits of traffic off a server is actually becoming commonplace, especially for large cloud providers. Mm -hmm. Agreed. And and I would say that the, the area that I think is super interesting is the application of security to this model. So as you say, the hypervisor, um, it, you know, in large part can move to the to the um, to the smart NIC, but then the question is, how do you deal with this, the security environment? And what's happening, especially in these bare metal service models, is you you actually implement security on the smart NIC so that there's an air gap between the host CPU and the network uh, right. that is completely controlled by the smart NIC. So the smart NIC becomes the sort of security point of demarcation between. Uh, yeah. between the, so the it, consumers. Think, okay, so the, the mm. word air gap there, I mean, some people are going to bristle at that because it, you know there isn't a physical air gap. But practically speaking, there is. The smart NIC is doing the processing. It's not hitting the bus and moving into the host itself because all that processing and the, the decision-making 
happens within the NIC before any of those packets actually get forwarded into the box. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I'd say that the, the, next, the next step we're going to see, which is super exciting, is how do you deal with microservices in a similar fashion? So microservices, one could argue, is sort of the next step in, in you know, the uh, dense uh, VMs or containers, right? And, and so there, there's this new opportunity to accelerate, like, the service mesh. And where does that land? Right now, it's, it's sitting on host CPU and, and can ultimately become pretty cumbersome for the host CPU. Is that a is that the next thing that could could move to a smart NIC be accelerated? And so you have essentially on the host CPU you have um, the the microservices running, but the service mesh and the infrastructure and the and the connectivity yeah. is being managed by the by the smart NIC. So this idea of offloading functions to the NIC you know, also implies that the NIC is not just an FPGA like it has been for the last two decades. It's actually a full blown computer. We're talking CPUs. Memory, I think in some cases, uh, some of the NICs are running like eight cores and 16 cores of processor on the NIC itself, as well as an ASIC or an FPGA. So there's an ASIC fast path through the smart NIC, but there's also a processor on there. They're actually computers in their own right. They are. And what's really interesting in these early days is that there are many variants. So I talked about the notion of FPGA plus um, plus SOC in current generation is is what uh, customers are, are deploying. But then, then uh, of course, the competitive landscape is, you know, SOCs that are fully integrated with, uh, as you say, numbers of cores, lots of I.O. and some acceleration. Um, and, and over time, I fully expect that the, the, the ecosystem and the customer base and the market will, will converge on an ASIC-based solution. But it's early days and people are exploring all kinds of different use cases. And it's been easier in the early days to do it in the context of FPGAs. But over time, um, we expect that the a lot of these features will be sort of refined and understood and, and, and we'll be able to capture them in silicon as well as, you know, P4 programmability gives us a lot of flexibility yeah. in, in what we do with that pipeline and how we manage the packets. I think it's also interesting that we're now API, expect an API. So we don't expect to have like custom code that we write to, to do these things. We actually expect there to be a standard API and to a lesser or greater extent, we know that the API may evolve, you know, version one, version two, version three. We actually expect, I would expect SmartNix to have standard APIs for functionality. And P4 is one of those where I can just write some P4 code and then the SmartNix will work out how to do that in silicon. I don't have to, you know, work out the difference between the APIs from all of the different SmartNix vendors and write code for all of them. I can just write generic standardized APIs. Is that correct? Indeed. One area we think is super exciting is um, how the software tool chain is going to emerge. To your point, uh, people want to see a common API. They want to see a robust um, API that doesn't move around and doesn't change much. The P4 model is such that you, you write an application that application um, essentially gets co- compiled into the target, uh, whether whether it's a target that is a switch or a NIC or a software-based pipeline. And at the same time, the API gets generated from that code. Uh, so you have a, an API that's that's specific to the to the pipeline. The area that we think is really interesting and where we're investing is to have a common tool chain, um, a common P4. Uh, development environment that can be used to target all these devices. So the same P4 tool chain 
with the same front end um, that supports, you know, switch NIC FPGA host um, that allows you to basically take a same the same P4 application and just determine the appropriate target for the particular application or the size of the use case. Um, what what we're working on is is essentially taking what um, we we got from the Barefoot team, which is a very robust front end compiler has a number of really interesting features and capabilities, um, things like visualizer, so you can see um, when you're when you're using all the resources and you need to move resources around or or, or move tables and redefine the 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 flow, um, testers, uh, verifiers, all these things are part of the uh, front end of our P4 development tool chain. And then we have independent backends that are specific to the target and and refined and optimized for that target. And I'd say that the interesting end goal is that you can have a a, a tool chain that uh, basically can take a, a you know a holistic view of the data center and map yeah. that across the different devices. You could be using the same tool chain in or the same software in your NIC or in your Edge on the server as you are on your switch as well. So yes. in a sense, you can start to get, move towards a unified code base. Yes, and and what we're finding is uh, it's it's kind of straightforward to go from you know if you have a common SDK, a common uh, interface to the control plane, then we can have a common control plane that can essentially umbrella span the entire infrastructure. Have you know people talk about Sonic as a really interesting open project that's gaining a lot of momentum. We run Sonic on our switch today. Well, it could run on a NIC. It could run on a host with this common uh, 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 interface. We have a podcast coming up with Dell, uh, who is talking about their plans for Sonic, if you want to hear more about that. They're, of course, an Intel partner, so I think it's okay to mention that here. Things we're talking about SmartNICs, it seems to me that there's a position for some part of the Tofino capabilities, that is the switching asset, to make its way into the SmartNIC. Does it make sense for Intel to come up with like a version of Tofino that's on the SmartNIC to do the packet manipulation, maybe you know, cooperating with some of the silicon? Is that the future direction for this? Indeed. So um, one of the things that we're doing, and it's going to take you know time, but uh, we've learned a ton from the Barefoot team over the last year or so on how to efficiently implement um, P4-based packet processing pipelines, and that those key learnings are being you know fed forward into our our um, smart NIC um, uh, and and our foundational NIC um, uh, plans as well. So if you think about this vision that we we have as the network as a programmable platform, we think there are a handful of key tenets that make this um, possible over time. The first is a common set of pipelines between NICs and switches and, and hosts and a common programming model, which I've talked about. That gets you to sort of a common interface, which allows you to have a common software framework for managing and controlling these and putting applications on top. We, of course, think that telemetry and observability across the data center is fundamental. So that's a third key tenet. Um, and then having open cloud applications that, that we develop and the ecosystem develops and makes available for um, openly for customers to, to augment. And I'd say 
we've been, as I mentioned, we've been doing a lot of work in congestion management. HPCC is something that we've been working with Alibaba on. It's becoming available in IETF. There's a new um, protocol called NDP, which is going to be available in p4.org. So these um, open uh, applications that, again, are co-optimized between NICs and switches uh, are are, um, the tools that customers will need to actually deploy this concept of a a programmable platform in the end. And the final topic that I wanted to cover today, and I'm going to be a little bit cheeky because this is very future. So if you're listening, don't get too excited about this, but there was an article released recently where they were demonstrating how um, showing a prototype of a Tofino chip using silicon photonics. Now, I'm going to have a stab at trying to describe it. And by all means, jump in and tell me. My understanding is that the ASIC itself, in, the, in up until today, you have the chip and then there's a bunch of copper traces that radiate out from it that then go to the front. And then the SFP modules plug in the front and they do the electrical to optical conversion. As we approach 400 gig, that technology is okay, but it's reaching the physical limits of how fast we can transmit the signal. And when we get to 800 gig, and you're talking about transmitting 200 gigs of data per lane, so that is four 200 gig links, you've actually reached the limits of what copper can achieve. So you actually have to bring the fiber optic off the actual ASIC. Is that correct? Is that how it works? Yeah, that's a really good description. And if you just follow the path, you've got a switch with a bunch of integrated SERTIs. And in modern generations, you've got hundreds of SERTIs running at 50 gigabit or 100 gigabit. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, at one point, there just becomes a, a tremendous difficulty to escape from the chip. You can't get enough planes on the motherboard. You can't keep the signal integrity high enough off the package. And that becomes a challenge in itself. So think of a, a switch as having just a ton of SERTIs. And then to your point, today's model, you've got an SFP cage on the front of the uh, QSFP or OSFP uh, cage on the front of the box. And mm. you've got basically CERTES trace across the motherboard with pretty um, heavy duty uh, CERTES in between doing a lot of DSP work to keep that signal uh, with high integrity across the, the motherboard. And sometimes, especially in the 100 gig generation, we have to drop down retimers even on the motherboard just to get a handful of inches uh, to the faceplate. So all of that um, CERTES uh, heft and all the um, processing needed on the signal is cost and power and and in a lot of cases area. The closer we pull the photonics to the switch, the, the, the lower power that interface needs to be. Sometimes we can get rid of retimers. Sometimes we don't even need the CERTES technology in the ultimate uh, integrated plan. So uh, th- this is a super interesting space I, to your point. Um, at the at the you know 12t 25t generation it feels like everybody's going to be fine and you know going to be able to eke out um, the the connections to the faceplate over <laughs> copper yeah at 50t it starts getting really difficult and and so we're we're seeing uh, generally the industry coming to to the conclusion that at 50t we need to start making that transition um, and you know beyond that it's going to be it's going to be optical io coming off of these devices and now, Intel, Intel just to, yeah. is pretty well positioned for that, though, right? Because you have been researching silicon photonics for decades. And if I was, a, a, you know, a traditional networking vendor, I am going to be struggling to get someone to make me a chip that actually has a laser transmitter built into the asset, because that's what we're talking here. Indeed. Uh, it's funny. Uh, 
I, I learned when Pat Gelsinger came back to Intel recently that he actually started the the photonics development in Intel Labs about uh, you know fifteen ish years ago, maybe a little bit more. So right. um, so he has uh, I guess the good news there is he has a passion for it. But um, we've come a long way since the the lab work. Um, we now have hundred gig and four hundred gig and two hundred gig modules in the market today. Um, in, inside of the cloud data centers, we have the leadership position with um, uh, single mode silicon photonics. But what's most interesting about this whole path to integration is our photonics is uniquely silicon based. So we put the laser uh, in silicon, uh, which mm. allows us to do a much closer integration. We don't have to have external lasers that get coupled into the device. It's all integrated and we can just use standard silicon processes to you know, deliver very high quality, high performance uh, lasers. And for resiliency, which is what people sometimes worry about, we can stamp out multiple lasers and have have a redundancy in the lasers. So it's mm-hmm. it's really a significant advantage, I think. Which well, that's which a, that was a key part of it because QSFPs or the SFP modules generally don't have an a sterling reputation for reliability, and especially when you're operating at scale, the ability to replace the optical transmitter is key. So that's an issue that you no doubt companies have t- asked you about. Yes, indeed. And and I'd say that was the, the key limiter to um, this approach from the beginning. We we know that some of our customers have actually gone down the path of, of experimenting with this long ago. And they determined that, you know, one one laser failure in the box, you throw the box away. There's no there's no ability to swap yeah, anything out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, if we can do we've already proven with our optical modules that that we have incredible reliability in our lasers. And if we could do redundancy, there's just no longer that issue. Right. So people can feel somewhat confident that some of these things have been thought about. So if you're getting into that sort of technology, I, I just think that that's an, a really interesting development that the lasers will be in the ASIC and then potentially that that will come to the motherboard as well over time. But it may start inside of an Ethernet switch before it gets to the motherboard, which would be super cool. Indeed. So we also are exploring um, what we call optical I.O. And it's just the extension of, of what we're talking about now, where, you know, if you think about, you know, f- the generations out uh, accelerators and, you know, AI machines, they've got a ton of bandwidth coming off of them as well, whether it's memory or just I.O. to, to, to mesh together or to, or to connect to, to each other. Mm. Um, and so that's a great opportunity for optical integration as well. You think about today's Habana device has 10 100 gig interfaces coming off of it. So at some point it starts looking like a switch in terms of its its um, its yeah. IO. Well, that's about all that we have time for today. Thanks so much to Intel for sponsoring today's show and thanks for Mike for coming on to talk to us about it. If you want more information, uh, probably get in contact with us in a range of different places, but Intel has a uh, networking section. There's lots of useful information in there. And as discussed, the P4 workshop hosted at by the ONF is a place where you can get lots of research papers and stuff uh, on P4. And of course, you can find a lot of stuff around the internet. Thanks so much for listening and thank you for participating in our community. You can find this and many more fine free technical podcasts along with our community website at packetpushes.net. You can follow us on the Twitter as at packetpushes. Find us on LinkedIn. You know, it'd be super helpful if you could rate us on Apple Podcasts. It helps us to stay here and to be found by other people. And as always, remember that last and never, ever least, and I think we've demonstrated it today, that too much networking would barely be enough.